cliffcentral.com. Well, I don't think there are a lot of people who could say that they're a war correspondent over the age of 80. I also don't think there are a lot of people who can say that they've been to 50-plus conflict zones and reported and lived. Well, about 35. Well, listen, your the, the, the blurb here says uh, 25 conflict zones and civil wars in Mozambique, Nigeria, his, Israel, Hezbollah, um, all kinds of co- wars in the Congo. Those are still ongoing. In fact, you've just got back from the Congo now. No, it's Central African Republic. O-C-A-R. Uh, which is uh, just as bad. <laughs> a little worse, maybe. <laughs> you said it's... Your exact words were, that's a bad place. And I thought, well, coming from you, there's someone who knows bad places, so I'll take your word for it. L.J. Fenter, it's a great pleasure to have you here. It's Um, delightful to be here, too. Thank thank you. you. And congrats on the new book. It's called Taka Taka Bom Bom, which you must explain to us in a second. But really, I don't think there are that many people who can can firsthand tell stories like this uh, from so many different places over such a, a... a colorful and adventurous life. Well, there's a reason for that because uh, I was interviewed by Nigel Farage, not everybody's cup of tea on uh, right uh, right right wing uh, British politician, yeah, but an interesting he, guy. He, he created uh, Brexit, and uh, yes, he, he's on a regular daily program now, uh, Great Britain News, and Correct. he got me on board, and he said to me, "What in heaven's name possesses anybody to become a war correspondent?" And I said to him, "Well, actually, it's better than working." And uh, it is. That's part of the answer to what I have for you. Because um, if I can go to a war, I do. The bona fides that you pick up along the way, the people that you end up meeting, uh, they say with you. And, and uh, I've outlived many of them. But the point is that if I ask to go to somewhere with Americans, or the, not the British, I'm still a suspect Boer, uh, <laughs> But almost all the other countries, uh, they say to me, well, what do you want and um, when do you want to do it? So, And that's how it works. The same here with um, Central African Republic. And uh, last year, October, I was in Mali. Oof. And, well, that's, and, not a, and, that's not a very stable place either. And, and as of today, the British have pulled out, mm-hmm. are pulling the forces out. And that's very, very serious because those, those jihadist insurgents are, to put it bluntly, damn good. Well, didn't wasn't there that incident at the hotel? Well, they have uh, lots of incidents at hotel. Yeah, but but recently it made the it made international news because of all the the international people who were staying there. Yes, and and it's always interesting to me which stories are reported on and which are not. Yeah, and being a war correspondent is a is a tough job. I mean, you sometimes find yourself in a place where there's usually a lot going on, but you're there in the week or two that there's nothing. In your case, it seems that the action follows you everywhere. Well, I don't stick around most times. I go in, <laughs> I do the job, and I get out. That's how I've worked all my life. So I'm not really one for the social scene in terms of getting plastered with the boys after work. Right. Um, also, when you get be- when you become pretty well known as I am, and I've done quite a few um, exposures, releases involving nations, Somalia, uh, the, the you uh, made the news some of the Iranian. And uh, for a long while, working for Jane's, doing work for Jane's, I was never employed by them, but I've been doing work for them for 40 years. Um, you mean Jane's Defense Weekly? Jane's yes. De- and Jane's uh, interna- in, uh, in, in, International Review. Right. And they've got 15 other titles. Um, you get known because you are, you are releasing information that is sensitive. Mm. And uh, the uh, Iranians came after me after I broke a major story on their links in building the bomb. I said so in 2005. And a lot of, a lot of uh, Americans, uh, academics, attacked me for being so uh, blatant. And I said, well, you know, uh, Pakistan has got the bomb and North Korea has got the bomb. And those three are joined to the hip. Mm-hmm. Well, they were Bush's axis of evil, were they not? That's right. Yeah. And uh, if they've... If the one can have the bomb, the others. But the thing is that the we, we tr- we're digressing here, but this is important. The thing is that the Iranians don't know what to do. They've got the atom bomb, and Israel's got the thermonuclear, the H bomb, right, which is two hundred times more explosive. So but, you can. But, but Iran, as I understand it, also don't have the delivery mechanism at this point. Uh, they do indeed. Oh, they do. And some of it's come from this country. Hmm. So wow, that's interesting and controversial. Well, we're not going to go into that. Well, I will just start off by prefacing this. I mean, you don't look 
a day over sixty-five, seventy. Well, what I'm, I- not, I'm not just being nice to you because we are we're actually filming this. People can see it for themselves. But you are actually how old? I'm eighty-four next week. Let me tell you something. The kind of, of vigor that you need, or, or else just madness. I mean, you might just be mad. No, it actually doesn't hold anymore because I really am getting old now. I don't have my balance, and I, I fit. I walk with Lynn two miles four right. times a week. Uh, she's incredibly fit, a professional diplomat all her life. That's right. You dedicated the book to Lynn. That's right. She's uh, la, Madame Lambassadrice, embassy. And the embassy, British embassy in Gabon with her husband. Um, so we manage pretty well. Pretty, very, uh, but, but, pretty well. It, but, I'm very impressed. But I am starting to fade now. Okay, so the one ear doesn't work at all. Doesn't work at all, yeah. I mean, that has an advantage. Almost feels like I'm interviewing Horatia Nelson here. So no, your one ear that doesn't work, we've got a balance issue because of that ear. Yeah. But otherwise, I mean, you're still you're, you're in pretty good nick. I mean, you were. Well, I'll, I'll let you into a secret. There are a couple of things that don't work properly, and we won't go into uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> Al, listen, when I, when I started looking at this book, I first of all thought this is something that my dad will love. He loves reading about the ins and outs of, of conflict, particularly here in southern Africa, and it's rich pickings down here. There's still is. so many stories that are untold. You've told many of them, and it's to your credit that you've also supplied so much information to the world about what has happened, particularly in places like Angola and you know, old Southwest Africa, yeah. uh, Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, yeah. the, the conflicts in Mozambique. You could talk about all of those with, with great authority where so many people I think are removed and, and very soon, as always happens with these things, there won't be enough living people who went through these things to be able to speak about them with the kind of firsthand knowledge and sometimes the kind of emotion that really gets it to, to mean something to others. But when I read some of these stories, and your, your, your book, let's be clear about this. You're, you're very clear. In the beginning, you say this is not an autobiography. That's it's right. It's a collection yeah. of stories. But when you tell these stories and you have a real ability to tell them um, and to make them stick and to, and to almost take up space in someone's head forever with some of them, it must have been difficult for you to choose which ones to include and which not because you seem to have so many to choose from. You're right. Uh, the, the, the epilogue. I state I'm halfway there, <laughs> and I'm, and it's it, that's a nice chapter on itself because there's a hell of a lot of stuff. Mm. In in this business, um, there's no question that you end up uh, coming into contact with some very unusual people and and a lot of information that um, governments don't know. Like in Nigeria, I got there after the first coup d'état. Uh, I found that. In 1965, 1964-65, to be one of the nicest countries in the world. It's five years after independence. It is a fabulous place, really great. And it was so great that I went, I went to England. I got a job that everybody dreams about. Uh, I was asked, I was then very well qualified. I, I studied and qualified in Britain. And I had a string of na- things behind my name. And uh, uh, Clarkson's, chairman of Clarkson's, Alexander Glenn, asked me, how would you like to run your own shipping line? <laughs> and I said, uh, in my mind, uh, went to the thought, well, if it was a British guy, he'd say, well, I'd never done anything like that before. So I said, when do I start, sir? And what am I, what am I allowed? <laughs> Anyhow, uh, I did, I had four months to put it on the, put the Cena line on the, on the map, on, in the pool of London where we launched. And then I had to wait for the next project. And I waited so long that I, I, I eventually said, I'm not going to hang around. And my, my, my managing director said to me, Al, relax, go home and write. You like writing, don't you? I said, yes, I do. Well, it went on for three or four months. And then I wrote to the Nigerian companies and I got a job. And I arrived in this wonderful country two days after the first army mutiny. Wow. So there, there was a, a situation of, it, it, it changed overnight, you know, black to white. Now, when I said to you, you get information, you pick up information, it depends on your own uh, attitude and your mentality approach to what's going on and what's not going on. And in Nigeria, I was sent out into the field because the guy whose job I was going to take didn't want me to take the job. So he thought if he sends me into the field, into the various cities in Nigeria and travel all the time, I'm going to be killed on the <laughs> on the roads. Uh, where they're driving it's, is, it's is like it, when when uh, ancient generals in Rome didn't like right. someone, they'd put them on the front and hope they wouldn't come back. 
yeah, so so I wandered around and I ended up talking to a lot of people and I came back to the office in my fourth month and we had a big dinner with the company and I sat at the table. I said, you know, there's going to be another revolution here. So the managing director turned around to me and says, Al Venter, you keep to your business and you stick your nose out of politics wow. from now on. And I said, yes, sir. Anyway, bottom line, the the second army mutiny, the the return happened shortly thereafter. As you'd predicted. And had some of those people in the American and the British embassy got on the road instead of sitting in their desk, and it's still this is still the case, mm-hmm. they would have found out for themselves that what was brewing, and this was a far worse revolution because it was aimed at the Ibo community, and they killed hundreds of thousands. Well, I mean, the, the results of, of those tumultuous years are still being felt yes. in Nigeria to this day. I mean, yeah. we still have, you know, very deep tribal uh, divisions. We still have the, 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 the ongoing problem of Boko Haram in that area too. And obviously their insurgencies, which lead up into places like Mali and even into it, the they're Central they're all Republic. They're yeah. all linked with under uh, the, the mantle of Al-Qaeda. It's very, very well organized. Those mm. guys are good. And then on the East Coast, obviously, you've also got um, the Al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab. Now, Al-Shabaab and Boko Haram are now allied. Mm-hmm. And uh, their intelligence systems are so incredible that, boy, I'll tell you, they know what's going on. They know who's arriving at the airports. Really? So I was going to go to Somalia to finish that book. Well, actually, to finish the one I'm working on now, which is called... Uh, it's for a British publisher, and it involves all the hardest wars that I've covered. Yes. And it's a, it's a, it's a big work. It's almost done. And I thought I'd go to Somalia. But uh, somebody that has just been there said to me, um, you'd be a little stupid to go because they're going to know that you're on the plane. Uh, they check the manifest. They check the passenger lists. Don't. Really? And this was somebody at almost diplomatic level with the UN. <laughs> so I didn't. Similarly, I should be going to northern Mozambique. Well, I've been to northern Mozambique, uh, and I actually went there just before the war started. It is one of the most beautiful places in the world. I went to completely lawless. I went to the Lueri Game Park, which is like well, I'm wearing, I'm wearing Lueri. That's right. And um, it is really fantastic, but but not a great place to find yourself now, especially if you're if you're if you're a war correspondent talking about stuff that that these. So I was warned off Jihadists by, don't want you to talk about it. Yeah. The, the head of uh, – the, uh, the European head of European forces in Mozambique until very recently uh, was uh, a very uh, Limos Perish brigadier general. And he and I have become great friends because I, sir, I went into Angola in the north of Angola during the colonial war. Mm-hmm. And his father was the commander-in-chief. Wow. Of that area, so I mean, you know, this is how you keep on bumping into people. It's like when I when I was in Central African Republic in Mali, uh, you know, for the first few days, the the, the youngsters uh, would look at me and say, eventually, one of them would come and say, "What are you really doing here?" I said, "Well, you know, this is what I, you know, but yeah, but why aren't you? My grandfather is your age, and he stays at home." And watches television. So I said, well, if I had to do that, I'm going to be dead in a year's time. <laughs> well, listen, there's certainly no shortage of, of adventure. And we'll get into some of those. And I also want to go back to, to Somalia in a moment. But the, the name, because people are going to ask, Taka Taka Bom Bom. I mean, it occurred to me straight away that this is the sound of a gun. Yes, indeed. And you explain that in the beginning. But just explain especially where. And, and you, you tell a beautiful story about your own ancestry and your own history and kind yeah. of where the machine gun comes from. Well, my father, this dates me, fought in the First World War. And mm-hmm. the first place he was sent to was Tanganyika, where the South East, Africans, East, tens of thousands of them, were fighting against Fondet, uh, General Fondetto Furbeck. He was actually a colonel, not a general. He became a general later. But he was an incredibly wise general and tactically of the best you can imagine. He was never captured. He was never surrendered. He was the last general to lay down his arms in northern Rhodesia at the end of the war. Anyway, my dad at one stage came under attack because the uh, Germans took the local African population uh, and they trained them and they used them as a fighting force and they called them Ascaris and Mm -hmm. they were good. 
they were really good. That's a word we still use. They used them during the apartheid years here in South Africa. That's right. Mm. And, and they invaded Mozambique twice successfully. But he came under attack with what the uh, Swahili word for machine gun is taka taka bomb bomb. Really? And as a kid, he used to amuse me with that. You know, he'd tuck me into bed at night. I was only a kid of about three or four. And uh, he'd say to me, taka taka bomb bomb, tonight you're going to hear it. You know, and then oh. he'd make the sounds like. And uh, so it went. And uh, it, it, it does ring a bell uh, because it's quite, it's quite emphatic. Uh, it, it tells you, it, it catches your attention. Let's put it oh, that absolutely. way. Oh, you, absolutely. You don't forget. And it's, it's funny how I'm sure that you can recall all kinds of memories from all the places you've been and the things you've seen. But the ones that stick in your mind are the ones that appeal to more than one sense, right? So if you hear it and you see it, if you Yeah, if well, you the thing is it, that nobody, nobody, anybody that says that he's not fearful of being fired at is talking rubbish because uh, in my case, as I said earlier, I'm the biggest coward in the world. Uh, when there's a lot of incoming, I, I get my head down. And That's I, why you're still alive at 84. <laughs> Yeah, well, I suppose. I mean, so. there are a lot of people that you knew, and and uh, you were probably quite friendly with who are not around anymore. What 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 about Africa? Is it that you think makes this place such a? I mean, it's just it's furious and crazy and mad and dangerous and 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 the the people who live here either by choice or by virtue of birth or maybe by curse of birth in some places. We consider this to be normal, but everywhere else in the world. I mean, this is really the place that you go to you if, know, if, I, if you want adventure in your life. It's the, yeah, but it's the most the same, exciting place on earth. At the same time, I've been back here now a couple of weeks with Lynn. Yeah. And one of the observations she keeps on making, she says, what a happy crowd. There's always a smile. There's always a help. Uh, and that is true. That is true of South Africa. Uh, you can go just about anywhere. Mm. You've only got. You know, the, the bad guys are maybe 0.05%. They make a lot of noise. I know they do because they're armed and uh, they, they are ruthless and there's a lot of lives being lost. But the rest of the population wants to get on with living. They want to educate their children. Uh, and they are managing reasonably well, but I'm afraid for the government. So let me ask you this because I know it feels like a reductive question, but I don't want it to be thought of as that. Um, in all the places in Africa that you've been, and I've seen photographs of some of these places, I've, I've read about some of the conflicts, I've read about some of the horrible things that happened, for example, in Rwanda, obviously, during the genocide yeah, there. Yeah. I've heard reports just recently from the Central African Republic of kind of just how lawless and mad it is. Um, we all know how Somalia was in the 90s and still is in some places. And yet it was one of the finest, you know, I, I went there before the war. Fabulous place. All really? the foreign correspondents in Nairobi would make a point of going there because it was to an Mogadishu. incredible place. The, the, uh, before the war started, and I'm talking about the 60s and 70s, early 70s, uh, it was a great place to go. It was very Italian. It had been an Italian colony and, and it had its own lagoon. And, um, well, I looked at, I looked at a, a, an aerial picture. You know this Google Earth, which I'm sure you've that's right, seen. Yes. I, I looked at, at Mogadishu on there. Probably about four years ago last because yeah. I realized there's nothing to really look at. Yeah. I mean, it's more rubble piled upon old rubble upon even older rubble. Yeah. And you're telling me that this used to be this extraordinarily cosmopolitan, interesting yes. place. It had a great big a, a Roman arch in the middle of the city, a Roman Catholic cathedral. Uh, the hotels worked up to a point because it was a, still uh, a colony. Um, but it was fabulous. It, and now – I mean, the last time you were in, because no. when I think of awful, awful places that I would feel that I'd really had a bad roll of the dice in life if I were born there, one of them at the top of my list would be Mogadishu. Yeah, well, you don't go there now. Finished. No. I, I, I mentioned. Well, you just you, said you can't go there now. The Australian government uh, last month issued a notice about traveling, about residents in Somalia, which said, you can look it up on Google. Um, if you are in Somalia at the moment, Take the first plane out. Abandon ship. You're on your own, <laughs> right? So, so tell me about the most dangerous place, in your opinion, because you really have a, a breadth of opinion where you can say this and it means something. The worst place that you've been, the most dangerous place you've been, the place that you felt the least comfortable and safe. And, I mean, you've got a, that a was the, very uh, high pain threshold compared to ordinary old us. Yeah, well, that is the uh, – I would rate the Sierra Leone Civil War. I went in there. There was a bunch of um, – 
mercenaries holding the fort before the British came in. Uh, Neil Ellis, the most famous war correspondent, uh, gunship pilot in the world. Mm. Uh, and I knew Neil from the border war. We watched our children go up together. And I, I was living in America at the time, and I said, I want to come over. He said, all right, well, tell me when. And he fetched me from the airport in his helicopter. Now, this was an interesting thing because I couldn't fly in directly. I had to take, I had to fly to Conakry, the neighboring, and then a Russian plane picked me up and brought me to uh, uh, Freetown. To well, the, 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 a lot of these places don't have commercial flights going to them. Well, they still did then. But anyway, okay. the thing is, uh, not some of the countries took a chance. And so I, he said, uh, go, to the, go to the control tower when you get to Freetown. Tell them to call um, Charlie, Charlie One Zero, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And they told him, and he landed his gunship. Right there. <laughs> now, when he landed and he's waiting for me to pick up my baggage, he was surrounded by a bunch of British troops because by then the British had moved in under uh, uh, what is what retired General Sir David Richards, the chief of staff of the British Army. An interesting story here. Yes. And uh, they crowded around this uh, this helicopter, MI24, and the gr- the floor at the back was covered in spent casings. Machine gun casings. They had been into a hell of a battle that morning. So they opened the thing. They threw my baggage in and they took off for the Air Force <laughs> Base. And, and there I, I spent now, I spent almost two months with them and we went flying. And that, that is where you put your, your heart in your pocket because in, in, in doing what we had to do, we also came under a hell of a lot of fire. And, um, well, Neil is just so, he's, he's luckier than me. He's never been properly wounded, you know. Um, he's so. flying his helicopter around <laughs> like it's a, like he's a tour guide, but he, uh, into the most dangerous places in the world. <laughs> but you know the word the word mercenary um, is, is he's castigated for that. But the point is that he'd been operating there and keeping the country before the British arrived. So when 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 Brigadier General Richards arrived, he took him under his wing, because it's Neil that took the SAS on furtive sorties. And briefed him of Special every operation in Rhodesia, huh? Yeah, yeah. Neil is actually—he's uh, <clears throat> a very interesting guy. You should meet him. Well, you know lots of interesting guys, and I'm going to quote from your friend Frederick Forsyth. He is actually your friend, um, and you said mercenary just now, which made me think of this because I read it just yesterday. For the mercenary is a simplistic fellow. Not for him the strutting parades of West Point, the medals on the steps of the White House, or perhaps a place in Arlington. He simply says, pay me my wage and I'll kill the bastards for you. And if he dies, they will bury him quickly in the red soil of Africa and we will never know. And we don't know. Hmm. I mean, you're, you're, you know, this is what makes these kinds of, of, of stories and these kinds of books, and they're not a lot of them, as amazing as they are. When you were growing up, you couldn't have foreseen any of this. You just spoke about how you... You were in shipping and all kinds of other interesting things. Well, as a kid, I was bored to hell with but you, school. You, you must have the shortest attention span of anybody. Not anymore. To be able to keep moving. Not anymore. At that no, pace. I, I take it all in. I've got a, I, I'm very fortunate with a good, good, incredible memory. But I do tend to forget where I lost my keys and uh, left them. And uh, Lynn sort of reminds me to do my, do my fly up and things like that. Well, this book seems to me like it was written with a clarity of mind that very few people can can possess in their in, you know in the prime of their lives let alone in their 80s and and you, you recall names and places and 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 you explain situations as if you know you're still in them yeah well i am and uh, i bring some of it out as i was asked yesterday by somebody whether i suffered from ptsd and I take that very seriously, but today, unfortunately, PTSD is regarded as a sort of, a, you know, excuse to stay off work for the day or a week. The real PTSD, and I've only had 10 days of it, uh, about uh, 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, and it's the waking up in the middle of the night in this absolute terror and horror that is inexplicable, and there's no escaping it. So I live in a cottage on a farm, in England, in the south of England, and uh, I then threw one of the windows open and hung half out the window just to get the air. And at the time, I was, had a very good friend in America, uh, and I 
it was then two or three o'clock in the morning and I phoned her and I said, I've got to talk to you. And I said, listen, I'm having a problem. And she said, what is it? And I said, I just, I am so fearful I can't even explain it. And she talked me through to dawn. And then I got to sleep. And that went on for another nine, eight, nine, ten days. I can't remember. And then it ended. And I've never had it again. I had it once about a short while ago. And I was going to phone Lynn, but I thought, it's just the once. So I seem to have come through uh, unscathed. A lot of people don't. Do you think it's a... I can't explain it. Well, okay, then we'll just we'll end that line of questioning. But, I mean, do you, do you recall what brought it on? Yeah, it's, you know, this is um, one of the most shocking experiences of my life was uh, a Beirut mm. operation that I went on. I spent a lot of time in Lebanon during the war. I was with Israelis. I've been in with the Israeli Defense Force many times, and um, I was close to them. I was close to the, the establishment accepted me, and they let me go through into South Lebanon through a closed border at, uh, I think it's called Roshanikra. And, you know, when the first time I arrived, they said, you get the hell out of here. And I said, no, 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 I've got, I can be. So they phoned. Israelis are very good with comms and, and they came back and apologized. And after that, uh, I went in uh, on a Hertz hired car. I never told Hertz many times. But anyway, that was… <laughs> that should have made you pay a super premium <laughs> knowing what kind of work you did. Well, that's that time. But anyway, th- there was another time. I worked all – every time I went into the war proper, yeah. I worked with – the Christian forces. Mm-hmm. Most of the media worked on the other side of the green line with the Muslim forces. Mm. The British were very pro-Muslim mm-hmm. and, and the Christians were castigated as um, mercenaries or unbelievers or whatever. Anyway, it's just easier to demonize them. I, I ended up spending some good time with these guys uh, and they looked, well, there's not a case. You can't look after somebody in Beirut because there's a lot of stuff falling on people's heads all the time. And uh, there was one... Uh, evening that I was with a young guy who was tasked to look after me. His name was Christian, 21 years old. He'd been uh, at the Sorbonne. Mm-hmm. There's French as the second language, but for the Christian, it's the first almost, Arabic and Christian and, and, and English, uh, French, sorry. And um, he took me, he said, how do you like to see the green line from right up close? Because it's between, it's like in New York City with the tall buildings and only the street separating the two sides. And heavily barricaded, but also very dangerous because infiltration takes place. So I said, okay. He said, okay, we're going to. I mean, this is almost like being taken to the, the, the wall in East and West Berlin in the. That sort of know, thing. That sort of thing. Yeah. So I said, all right, we'll go. And we went underground uh, along a very well uh, unlit path uh, where some of their guys had been killed by an assassination squad waiting. And so they were very careful. They got me to the line. And the, and uh, there was this big building opposite, dead, black, excepting for one little uh, veranda on the first floor, about 30, 40 meters that side. And he, s- he said, poke your head out quickly and have a look. He said, that's our target. I said, what do you mean our target? He said, we're going to hit it. He said, you're going to hit it. I said, um, with what? He said, well, he had uh, their version of an RPG-7 which is quite a sophisticated weapon and it works the same way, enormous blasts out the back. And I said, hell, that's kind of you, but uh, do you mind if I, <laughs> if I take a rain check on this one? <laughs> I said, wow. I'm not really involved uh, and, and I'm not comfortable in this mm. closed confine. So he said, uh, so the, the, the section leader said, okay, we'll do it. So I had to stand well clear. Him and I, Christian and I, stood well clear and he blasted, and it was a very simple thing. The rocket went into this uh, concrete veranda, and there were five or six Syrian troops, and I believe they were all killed. Anyway, we then made our way. We went back to our side, and there was a little restaurant there facing the opposite side of the wall, and we had supper with hummus, hummus and tahina and uh, pita bread and so on, and then he took me to Sodico which is an unfinished super uh, 24-story building. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't go up in the lift because it was unfinished. So with the last six or seven stories, we had to um, Use the stairs. climb normal stairs. And we got to the top, and there was Beirut lying on all sides, and it was a spectacular 
shady view because most of the lights were out on both sides for obvious reasons. Mm. But Christian by then was acting a bit strange. He was a little bit on edge. And at, there were, it was him, me, the commander, and one other guy, four of us up there. And it was, it was a, a, sh- a shell, unfinished shell, right up to him. And suddenly the front opened up. It must have been 10 or 15 kilometers opened up on the Syrian side against in Beirut. Well, this is something that I've never, ever seen before because I'm sitting up there and for some time, you know, the rockets and missiles and mortars and everything was exploding all, you know, but not too close. And then somebody uh, started using a, a ZSU-2324, ZSU four-barreled heavy machine gun, big job. Mm-hmm. And it fires 2,000 rounds a minute, but you 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 pull the trigger for a, perhaps a second and then you get a ball of fire about 50 meters across, maybe, I can't, who knows at that speed, maybe 100 meters, but it's a ball of fire and it doesn't sound like a machine gun, it sounds like a roar of a motor. And the first salvo went to our left and the second salvo went to our right. Now had the guy aimed just one degree I mean, there's no possibility. But did you think at that point they were actually trying to go for what was in the middle? They were were avoiding us. And then we had a tremendous blast below us from not that lot. And there was a scream where Christian had stepped back into an empty uh, uh, lift shaft. Oh, Jesus. And he fell down it. And and we knew. And and they got on the radio and they said, get down. now, the commander of that unit, whose name is Rocky, I got to know Rocky very well, a tough, really tough Christian Lebanese guy, and we met him halfway down. And there's a hell of an argument between him and the commander that was looking out there, and they're furiously row, furious row. And uh, I had to pass past Rocky, uh, he let me go first, and then the commander said to me afterwards, he said, uh, he was coming to throw you over, he thought you'd killed Christian. Oh and I God. had to explain to him that you were lying right next to me. And um, that is the sort of situation you get yourself into. Now, that caused me, and it still does, um, because I I was there when they pulled his body out from below and his, his knees touched the back of his head. And then at 4 o'clock, maybe 5, I heard bells ring outside and they'd called his parents in the meantime and they buried him there and then. In the morning, and so that was uh, something that uh, I can't get. I was in a terrible state. I, I had a. Uh, they, they, we went right down to the basement. It was a very big basement down below, and then but then they'd worked out where it had come from, and they were dropping uh, 240 millimeter mortar shells on us, and the whole building shook. You know, every time one of these things, and and the dust came down from the roof, and I was I was in such a state that my morning. Uh, the commander came to me and said, sat on the end of the bed. He said, Al, pull yourself together. He said, you're not, this is not you to do to, this is what happens in war, you know. And I said, yes, but had I not been here, it wouldn't have happened. And that's true. With all of your experience now in these situations, do you think that war changes people forever and how does it change them? Because what that commander said to you is probably true. He knew what he was talking about, and he'd seen you, you know, in a, in a more composed state, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Um, with what you've seen and what you've witnessed firsthand in war, how does it change people, and what does it do to them? For those of us who've, who've never been in a conflict zone. Most of the guys that I have been, and I'm going back now to, I'm going back 60 years most of the guys that are really involved in the heart of it, special forces, uh, uh, secret police, people that ended up killing somebody, I don't know many of them that have not been so severely affected that they either, so many of them ended up in car accidents, abnormal number, and probably because they were drinking themselves to death. Killing people, uh, is easy enough. You can, you can probably get away with it, but doing it more and more 
British SA. I've got a lot of British SAS friends, and they they find guys. They are chosen because of their qualities, um, but they don't seem to survive very long uh, afterwards. Um, an interesting story here is that um, I went to America after I'd got out of Mali last year, and I met a guy that. Uh, I was with some American special forces and they were having a, a little powwow in, 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 on the West Coast. And uh, Floyd said to me, he said, I'm going to introduce you to the guy that had you under protective observation for three years. He headed the team. I had no idea that I'd been under protective observation in, in Canada for three years. And I met him and it was quite emotional. His name is Eric. And uh, he said, I know you, Al Venter, better than you know yourself. Now, I then said to him, now, now suddenly a guy, this is thrown at me and I have no, I had no idea. I knew that they were watching me in long distance roads because well, there's always be a car about a mile or two behind. That I was aware. And that made me, that pleased me because that's good. That's good news. Um, but uh, I then said to him, well, three years. I mean, how big is your team? He said, three man team. Wow. Uh, can you imagine how much that cost? You're important. No, it's not a case of important. I'm <laughs> no, a, but I'm saying I'm, I'm, I don't think there's any celebrity that's had a three-man team following them yeah, for but three I'm, years. I'm under th- I'm under serious threat. And mm, I said to him, course. I said to him, Eric, how? What? What was the threat variable? He said, well, I can't talk about it. Mm. But I know who it was. Uh, I, I, you know, I know which country it was that was trying to get to me. So, and I'd imagine having lived in America in the same sort of period. The Americans also kept a good watch on me because I, I did a bit of gun running in, in a, by accident from <laughs> Canada into um, Detroit. <laughs> and uh, the guy said to me, uh, when you arrive at the border, have you got any weapons? Now, I'd been living in America for about eight or ten years, and I thought, you know, I'm home. But I had never formally declared myself. I, I'd, had, I'd overstayed my welcome. Mm-hmm. I said, yes, I've got a shotgun and a handgun, which should be handed to me by a very good friend who said, you've written a book about Iran, and he said, you better have these. And I said, I don't need them. He said, take them. Wow. So I then had come out of Canada into America, hmm. and he said, have you got anything to declare? I said, yes, I've got a handgun and a shotgun. He said, uh, I suggest you drive up there. And when I got to the top, the, the, uh, another guy said, get out, and I was made to assume the position. He went over me very quite brutally. And then I was put in a room. And uh, I then said, I suggest you phone your boss in Washington. And they, uh, they did. And two hours later, the first time in my life that I've ever had all the members of a border unit come out and wave me goodbye. To, but I wouldn't, they wouldn't let me into America. He said, you've got to go back to Canada. I said, yeah, but I'm... You know, I'm here. He oh, said, I'm, I'm sorry. Just he the, says, you yeah. just committed a federal offense. I can't in front of my staff let you come through. So you go back to Canada, you go into somewhere else. <laughs> but just the, the idea that you could use the line, I suggest you talk to your boss in Washington, is, is something that I think most people uh, dream that one day they can say something like okay, that well, and it's, get it's, away it's, with it's, something. It's, it's, open, it's, it's, it's an open fact that I uh, did a job for the CIA. Mm. And that is a story in itself uh, in Afghanistan. I got the crew together and uh, they paid me a hell of a lot of money. Uh, and, uh, well, we won't go on. Well, that. how much can you even say about some of these things? Because this also occurred to me during the writing of this book. You, you were a person who had access to information which could have sunk governments um, in very many situations. You could have done an enormous amount of good or bad yeah. in a conflict zone. And, there's probably some stuff that you're not allowed. There's a hell of a lot of stuff to say, and there, and there's some stuff that even when you're dead one day we won't know. Yeah, well, you know, we'll just leave it at that. So, out of all these these mad, bad, and dangerous to know people that you've encountered over the years, who who are the ones who stick out the most, and who are the ones who've stayed around the longest? Because you do have some. Pretty well-known friends who've written some amazing books. I don't doubt for a second that, and you don't have to confirm or deny this, but that some of the inspiration for some of their stories have come from things that you've told them, and from people that you've introduced them to, or just explained. Well, Freddie, your travels. Fre- Fre- you Freddy. say Freddie, Frederick Forsyth, it's John been- Le Carré. These are both people who've written um, uh, on the on the on the uh, 
what do you what do you even call them the the outside the, of the book the blurb. and the yeah. blurb yeah both of them have given you high praise here freddie well freddie uh was cia yeah. uh, sorry he was mi6 uh from okay. very young mm-hmm. and i didn't know it because freddie spent time with me in america and um as he says in his letter, which I reproduced, he says, you and I are both uh, lucky to be alive. We've made it. And that your next, next time you go to the pub, raise your arm and have a pint with me. And, uh, I didn't, I didn't know how he knew that. And now I know that he was, he hadn't come out yet as being a secret intelligence service. How does that even happen? Do they, do you just get a call one day? Does someone pitch up at your house? <laughs> no, Freddie is a very clever man. No, no, I don't mean him. I'm talking about with you, with the CIA job too. I mean, does someone just call you up? No, I can't. I'm not going to go into that. Well, just I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not interested in who well, or where. But do they do they arrive in person or no? I got a call from I got a, a call from somebody saying um, I was in Cape Town, living in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. I'd made a lot of money, by the way, as, uh, in my work. I was one You've of the, written lots of books. Yeah, but they don't make the money, um, so we won't go into that detail either. But <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a shadowy man you are! All right, go on. So I got a call saying, uh, can you come to Washington? So I was in America at the time. That's right. And uh, I was in England at the time. So I, they, they sent me a ticket. And in uh, Washington, I was greeted by two guys. And they said that uh, we'd like you to consider doing a job for us. And I never, the, CIA, the word CIA never came into it. Right. So they then said, what do you want to, I need, we need an hour-long documentary made on the war in Afghanistan. With the Russians were then, 1985, were in control. We want, we want to celebrate this our fifth anniversary. And I'm delighted. You know, I mean, you don't get an offer of a job like that. So they said, how much do you want? So I said, a quarter million. So they said, all right. I said, and also, I only travel first class. So they said, no, well, we, that's not on. That's not on. Sorry. So I said, Listen, you've asked me to do this job. You've obviously looked over my circumstances. I travel first class. Well, of course I didn't. I said, <laughs> <laughs> so the two went into Hubba Hubba there in the corner and uh, they came back and said, all right, well, this is a special thing, so <laughs> we'll accept that you travel first class. And <laughs> now, Well, that'll only get you so far because once you're in Afghanistan, there's no first class. <laughs> No, well, this is the cruise. This is the cruise. I had three crews in there at one okay. stage. Okay, I also had crews in, South, in Africa working at the time. Afghanistan fascinates me. I mean, what a what an interesting place. And obviously, it's been in the news virtually nonstop yeah. since that Russia-U.S. And it's never going to come right because it's just a total catastrophe. It's a very sad situation. But uh, that, that is in the second volume. This following. Okay, All so we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, because I I think it's a, a great travesty that I couldn't get to read any of that in this one. So let's just talk about Africa again because there can't be very many places that you still want to go to that you haven't seen. Uh, and there can't be very many people. I mean, Idi Amin features in this book, for heaven's sake. Yeah, Idi Amin, I, I, I mean, I, this is someone who… I, 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 took, I took my then wife into uh, Uganda and we were under surveillance. I was terrified. I was really terrified because they kept us under surveillance. And I took her up to Murchison the falls, and I stayed in a tented camp. And I didn't sleep at all because I was aware that they were watching us. And they didn't do anything. But two journalists, three journalists had been murdered by then. There was a, there was a pair of Scandinavians. I, I remember that. And, I remember uh, we were reading about it because we and, didn't. And, and, but they did silly things. You know, you, there's a way. That you, you end up being able to assess situations. I'm, I'm very conscious of uh, really not taking chances. Uh, there are things that you don't do, and that's one of the things. So um, I went there often, but I never traveled on a, on a normal flight because they, again, you had the goons waiting for you at the airport. I would either come in by what boat. What would they do, shake you down, take you away, and No, 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 you. no, you just know they're there. Oh, okay. So you and just don't want to take the chance. So w- yeah. when you say you don't take regular flight, what, you charter uh, your own flight in? I will in. find out who's got a charter flight going in, or okay. I'd go by the boat that goes around Lake 
Victoria. Wonderful yes. trip itself. Because you can hop on anywhere and hop That's off right, everywhere. Yeah. And then I'd only stay long enough to do my job and I'd get the hell out of there. And I'd go out on the road to Kenya, across the, but I wouldn't cross at the border. I'd get somebody to drive me a couple of miles up and cross the border and then come back to the road and then get another vehicle. Mm. Uh, so you, there's ways of doing it, um, but you can't always avoid because you've got to stay in a hotel. And they take down your details there. Hey, you're on file, you know. Mm. It's, it's there. And, and I spent a lot of time. Uh, it's just, uh, you, did you ever get paranoid about things, especially once, you, you know. You can't if you're not in this job. You have to just assess. And I, I went into Lebanon in three years ago. I wanted to go back to the, to the Israeli border. And I think I, I mentioned this elsewhere, that um, I had to – very complicated business to get authority, military and government, to go to the south because it's Hezbollah country. Mm. And uh, I had to hire a car with an Arab driver, and he took me down to Nakura, which is the United Nations base. But on the way there, in a place called uh, Tyre. Tyre, the famous ancient yes, port of Tyre, uh, yeah, on the Mediterranean. We were stopped. And uh, 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 Arabic spoken, and uh, then the guy turned, he got in. And he turned his head, he went, went off, and he said, um, why are you here, Mr. Fenter? I said, well, you've asked the question, knowing my name, you know very well why I'm here. Uh, do you have authority to be here? I said, that's another stupid question. I said to him in that language, are you, that's another stupid question because you know bloody well <laughs> I couldn't have got through the roadblocks without the documentation. Right. And then I was dropped. He Then he got out. Then I was dropped at the base at Nakura, and all they would let me sleep in was a big hotel across the road from the – and I expect to sleep inside big walls. Yeah. I don't sleep if I haven't got big walls around me and somebody at the door. And you ask me, is there ever a circumstance where I cut loose? Well, I didn't sleep that night, and I then took – next got a taxi, took me back to Beirut, and I got on the next flight to Europe. So – Yes, there are times when you get the hell out of there. You don't have an option. And that's one of them. Now, I knew Hezbollah quite well because I had previously interviewed Hezbollah. Uh, I'd been in Beirut. Uh, this was at, this is the same time that Princess Di, the same month that Princess Di died. So September 1997. Yeah, so I... Uh, I got uh, I made contact with a Shiite. I asked, and I said, I want to visit your commander, mm-hmm. Hezbollah. He, he looks at me and <laughs> he looks to the sky. I said, $100. He said, okay, I'll see you. So I waited uh, days and days, and eventually I phoned up the British embassy, and I said to him, he knew me because I was writing for Jane's, and I did a report for Jane's. And uh, I said, look, I'm trying to get to Hezbollah. He says, well, uh, Colonel, I can't remember his name. And he said, why the hell do you want to speak to those those bastards? Exactly. <laughs> and uh, he said, leave them alone. You know, just get out. You know, don't do that. So anyway, within an hour of that telephone call, a car arrived downstairs and took me to meet uh, the um, the fellow. Um, I can't remember his name. It's um, quite a complicated. I'm animal. fairly sure he's but dead he by was, now. No, he's not actually. Not? I was, I was thinking of meeting. I was, I was thinking of contacting him when I was in Nakura last time. <laughs> and uh, so uh, he he invited me in. A very charming gentleman spoke perfect English. Now, week before, I'd been with the Israeli forces along the border, and the Israelis were still occupying part of South Lebanon. Hmm. And taking quite bad losses. And I'd been in the, on patrol with him. And we talked and we exchanged ideas. And uh, he then said to me, by the way, uh, how did you enjoy your trip in Israel? Oh, he knew all the time. So I said, uh, well, I said, you obviously know that I was there, that I have two passports. And um, he said, uh, how did you find them? I said, well, things are not good. You know, to be quite honest with you, there, um, there's a lot of problems with the number of deaths and so on. He said, well, how long do you think you'll stay? I said, not long. He said, really? I said, maybe a year. I was out by two days. 
That's a guess. That's a guesstimate. And anyway, as a result of that, I've never been able to cover the war in Israel, mm. cover, cover the border with Israel again. Yeah, you're, you, 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 on, you. On the way home, I took the train, J. I was living in America. I took the into JFK. I had a steel briefcase. And for once, I took the bus into town instead of getting a cab. And I got off at Times Square or where they dropped us. And I put my thing down and I did something here and, I, and it was gone. You're joking. Yeah. It was taken away, huh? They were watching you the like whole that. time. You see, this would make me paranoid. They were very, yeah, but this is in America now. So they yeah, were, yeah, but they know everything. They, had been, they knew I'd been with those forces and I, had so, a, I lost all my photographs. So that was the biggest loss of all. And I was willing to pay $1,000 to get it back. So I went back the next day and somebody said, yeah, we, I, I met a guy there who was hanging around. He said, I, I know who took your case. I said, well, I've got 1000 for you. Get it back for me, extra 1000 He said, uh, don't play with this one. Oof. He says, just forget it. Don't oh play with God. it. Oh, my God. And I did. I had no option. The funny thing is that I took my return ticket and my passport out of my suitcase while I was still on the bus. Sort of a, you know. Precautionary a, thing. Yeah. So you're not paranoid, but you're always prepared. Do you do silly things, you know. And um, But, you know, you took the bus, so it wasn't your normal course of action. And I didn't normally take the bus. And it didn't need to take the bus because it's a short flight from mm. or where I, I can't remember. Where well, from JFK into town is what, like an hour in the car? Yeah. You, you probably find ordinary travel quite boring. Incredibly <laughs> so. Believe me. <laughs> you find yourself getting on a commercial flight and becoming very, very bored with all the lines and the ordinary stuff and the, and the people with their, oh, they can't find their tickets and – Meanwhile, yeah, you're used to rushing I, out of a place in a war zone. I travel one step up uh, premier economy, but this time I left it too late, and uh, I've had to travel. And the uh, top of it were very good. They got me the window seat. So okay, and uh, that's uh, but uh, well, eleven hours. Well, all of this adventure has has luckily for me brought you to to sit in front of me and tell you just you know for you to tell us just a little bit of the, of the incredible. Life and the incredible stories that well, you still have. Quite a good introspection to the whole scene, it seems. Sir. Um, I'm thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for your time. And it's really a great pleasure and privilege to be able to just sit opposite someone who's seeped in, 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 in so much of this best and worst of human nature. Um, LJ Fenter, it's Tucker Tucker Bom Bom. People must buy it, read it. Don't take my word for it. You could listen to him for just two seconds of this interview and you'll see why you have to read the rest. So good to have you here. Thank you again. Thank you, Cliff. Good. Cliffcentral.com.